You're listening to an American Theatre podcast. American Theatre is a publication of Theatre Communications Group, www.americantheatre.org. Hello, everyone. My name is Calundra Smith, and I am the new managing editor of American Theatre magazine. Welcome to Off Script. I'm so happy to see you all this uh, afternoon as it is on the East Coast of the United States. Uh, we have an exciting episode planned for you today. Uh, we have illustrious, uh, renowned playwright Pearl Clegg um, in, the, in the Zoom room with us today. And we'll dig into that uh, a little bit more. But first, let me introduce uh, my associate editor. Hi, I am Gerald Pierce, the Chicago editor for American Theater. Pronouns are he, him, and I am zooming in from the traditional homelands of the Council of Three Fires, the Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi nations, and many other nations called this region their traditional homeland. Today, we colloquially refer to it as Chicago, and I am so excited for this conversation today. Thank you so much, JR. And I want to say that... Um... I am calling in from the traditional homelands of the Muscogee Creek and Cherokee nations, uh, which are, is now known as Atlanta. Uh, so super excited to be here. Um, before we dig in, for those who are watching for the first time, um, I want you to know that American Theater Magazine is the official publication of Theater Communications Group, which is a national organization for American theater. Um, and we are right now so excited because for the last three years, American Theater Magazine has been out of print, but we are returning to print on a quarterly basis starting this fall. The fall issue is due out next month, and you may be wondering, how can I get my hands on one? Well, it is not too late. If you become an institutional member or individual member of Theater Communications Group, you will have a copy of American Theater Magazine mailed right to your door, whichever door you prefer. So please be sure to check out Theater Communications Group's website and hook on memberships to learn more about how you can get it. And I have to say, uh, this magazine is going to look very different um, than what you're used to. So get the 2020 image out of your head because it's going to look modern, sleek. You're going to see uh, photography and illustration and things done in a way that um, you have not seen before. So we're very, very excited. Um, and there's going to, of course, always be great stories um, in the issue, along with we're bringing back play scripts. So you're going to have a full text of a play um, in there. And you're also going to have uh, top 10 and top 20 um, in there. So subscribers uh, will find out first. Um, so you definitely want to get that in your hands. All right. So I know that in every episode of Off Script, we usually dig in and we talk about the latest stories on the American Theater Magazine website. Um, this has not been a slow summer for theater at all. So often we talk about theater in terms of seasons, but this has been 365, 24-7 theater year in 2020. I see you nodding, JR. It has been that way, yes? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. You know, I 
I'll just let you start talking about the pieces because I, I'm excited to talk about mine as well. <laughs> yes, yes. So there's so much to talk about. So um, if you have missed it on the American Theater Magazine website, you need to check out, first of all, our summer book supplement, which has a new excerpt from uh, playwright Stephen Dietz. Um, the new the these are new theater book reviews on subjects from anything ranging from August Wilson to Race and Shakespeare, Richard Gilman, documentary theater. So definitely check out the book supplement. You're going to want to read those book reviews. They are uh, really going to give you insights. I learn, I always learn so much from the book supplement. I really, really enjoy it. Um, some other things that you want to be on the lookout for, um, Yuri, Yuri uh, Yurnov, who was the co-artistic director of the Wilma Theater in Philadelphia, uh, did a piece for us on um, Ukraine and Russia. This has been something that has, of course, been um, on everyone's hearts and minds um, for the last more than a year now. And one of the questions that he asked in that piece that I think is so poignant and important is, while weapons, news, and money do their job, what job can art do? How can it help? And so in that piece, he also talks about a new play written by a Ukrainian playwright. It's called My Mama and the Full-Scale Invasion by Sasha Desinova, Denisova. And it opens um, at the Woolly Mammoth Theater um, in this month. And then it will go on to the Wilma um, in January. So that's definitely something um, to keep a lookout for. Um, and then another thing that, of course, has been on everybody's mind um, is AI. <laughs> it feels like everywhere we turn, um, artificial intelligence is in the news. And so Annie Dorson, who is a MacArthur Genius Fellow, um, talks about her new show, which is a play on Aeschylus' Prometheus, um, and it uses robotics. And she also talks about um, the lack of transparency in um, how data, um, user data is being mined in AI, and how AI is going to affect artists. So that's definitely something to be on the lookout for. And I will say, um, the thing that's so interesting to me about that particular piece is that the very questions that the Greeks had, whether you're reading Aeschylus or Aristophanes, um, you know, had about democracy and how to keep it and, and capitalism and all of those things um, are questions that we are asking presently today, which lets us know that the human condition is fundamentally what it is, right? Um, and what has changed is the technology. Um, and so that is both comforting and crazy making um, at the same time. Um, but, but speaking of the human condition, one of the stories uh, this month that really warmed my heart was uh, is called Bilingual Theater in Boston. Um, and it is about Boston-based companies um, that are performing plays in Bengali, Mandarin, Cantonese, Spanish, all in an effort to serve a new group of audience members who may have not traditionally felt like they had a place in the Western theater canon, and they're finding their stories um, on, translated on stage in really beautiful ways. Um, so if you really, really want uh, to feel good about humanity, I definitely recommend checking that one out. Um, and then the last couple of stories that are just on my mind this month, and I want to kick it off to you, JR, because I know there's tons of news coming out of Chicago, but I the two that are uh, definitely on my radar this month are Shell Williams um, talking about her adaptations of The Wiz and Aida. Um, I think that those two pieces are so interesting. Here in Atlanta, we just, uh, True Colors Theater here just did a, you know, weeks long, huge adaptation of The Wiz that was a roaring success. And I think it's interesting adapting those two pieces as Shell Williams is talking about 
for contemporary times to see what still holds up, what doesn't, what's what was historically accurate in the original pieces, particularly talking about Aida versus what wasn't. And how do we really get down to the core of what makes these pieces resonate generation after generation for people across different walks of life? So that um, Michelle Legrand did a great job um, with that piece. And so definitely recommend checking that out. And then the other one, uh, which it's tickled me and, and was so interesting and insightful to me was uh, Jeff Barron, who's the playwright of Visiting Mr. Green, talks about how, speaking of things resonating over time, his play Visiting Mr. Green has had like more than 600 performances around the world since it originally premiered in 1997. And he has talked about how he has stayed with his play and been super involved over the last 25 years in creating different adaptations of the play that resonate um, here and now. So he did an update in 2005, and then he did an update just this year in 2023, specifically looking at, in the context of the play, how technology has changed the way that his characters would or would not interact with each other in different ways, and how cultural movements um, and ideolo ideological shifts have changed the ways in which particularly the younger character in that play navigates the workplace. Um, so all of those have been super exciting for me. I feel like I've said a ton. JR, I'm going to turn it over to you and you're going to give us the rundown on all things happening in Chicago. A hundred percent. Just listening to you like recap Jeff's piece makes me really excited to talk to Pearl. So I'm going to blaze. I'm going to blaze through this. Um, First, uh, I just want to mention a couple pieces that I wrote. First one about Collaboration, a local company here in Chicago. I was talking to them primarily about a youth program that they have called The Light, which pays an hourly wage to young artists to allow them the security and space and ability to create performance art around social justice causes that are important to them. And when I spoke to them, they were just coming off performing at Lollapalooza, uh, which is an insane opportunity for young people to have. Uh, and in that conversation, we also dove into how collaboration's been shifting their, their mission over the years from being a performance-oriented organization with a full season announcement to something that was more grounded in community and what the people of their Chicago neighborhoods actually needed and wanted from their arts organization. Uh, and I also had a chance to chat with Martine Key Green, Green Rogers, excuse me, who is the Dean of the Theater School at DePaul. And we chatted both about her first year as the Dean of the Theater School, as well as her newly announced role as president-elect for the Association for Theater and Higher Education. And I found it fascinating how she took her dramaturgical background and her desire to continually ask questions and ask the biggest question, why? Why are we doing this? Why are things this way? Why are we continuing to do something that has been this way in order to fully lead these organizations in the right direction and in a hopefully better and healthier direction? And I just found the conversation fascinating. It was impossible to cut down <laughs> for publication, but I, I think what, what we shared was amazing. Uh, and then I'd also point to uh, my colleague here, Gabriella, who wrote about Chicago Children's Theater's Red Kite Project, which is a program that houses a number of programs within it, specifically for kids with autism, developmental disabilities, and other accessibility needs. 
I think you just have to read Gabriella's perspective. She talks so beautifully from her own personal experience with her and her family and her brother and just seeing their programming through her eyes is enlightening. And then the the last piece I want to point out is from a reporter, Crystal Paul, who dove into the history and story behind Chicago's Black Ensemble Theater. And I've said multiple times that I learned more about Black Ensemble Theater from her piece than I've, I've lived in Chicago for a decade than I've ever known about them. And so reading the story of them and their founder, Jackie Taylor, and the future goals of this company, which is to create an artist corridor around their on their campus called Free to Be Village that'll include affordable housing for artists, a film and technology center, and an arts education center, and just how that grows as a progression as Jackie Taylor cultivated this not only theater organization, but this community and this communal um feeling and and aspect to to black ensemble theater That's yes that, i'll throw it back to you calendra no those are those are all really great and i that i agree the the piece about um black ensemble theater um was really like a piece of theater history education truly um so definitely add that to your essential reading I do want to talk about a couple more things. Of course, everyone knows um, at American Theater, we always have our eyes on entrances and exits, and often we will try to sit down with um, artistic leaders as they are entering or exiting organizations. So I want to make sure um, that everyone out there knows about um, our editor-in-chief, Rob Weiner-Kent, talking to um, Martin Miller about uh, Theater Squared, and also about David John Chavez talking to Giovanna Sardelli about um, coming into the helm helm of um, Theater Works Silicon Valley. Um, So we definitely want to be sure that folks check that out. Um, We also have to talk about, um, you know, during the last few uh, weeks with theater, we've experienced some pretty um, heavy losses. Um, But we have had the opportunity to have some really talented um, writers and and theater makers do beautiful in memoriams to some really dynamic artists. And so please uh, take a look at what uh, playwright Stephen Aldi-Gurgis had to say about his friend and collaborator, Ron Safis-Jones. We also have Carol Rothman and Cyril Rule. I mean, yes, Carol Hoffman and Sarah Rule talking about Tina Howe and um, her legacy, as well as um, Nathan Lewis Jackson, best known for the play Brokeology, um, having a beautiful dedication to him um, from his colleagues at uh, his in his hometown of Kansas City. It really is a love letter to a Native son. So um, definitely want to take some time to remember those great artists. So. Everybody is out there saying, when do we get to hear from the legendary Pearl Clegg? So today on Off Script, we are so happy to have Pearl Clegg on with us. She is currently the Mellon playwright in residence at the Alliance Theater, where her premieres include Angry Ruckus and Shamelessly Gorgeous, Pointing at the Moon, What I Learned in Paris, the Nakarema Society requests the honor of your presence at a celebration of their first 100 years. 
Tell Me My Dream, Blues for an Alabama Sky, and Flying West. The list goes on. Um, and note, Flying West was the most produced new play in the country in 1994. I just want to say that. And we're going to talk about those legendary plays as well as a new play that she's got up her sleeve. So thank you so much. Welcome, Pearl Clegg. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Nice to see both of you. Thanks so much. So um, nice to see you. I'm tossing it to you, JR. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to dive in because I, I think what's super exciting, and, and we haven't had a chance to mention it, is that Chicago is throwing a month-long celebration of Miss Pearl and her work. And so I, I think the best place to start is I'd love to know, were you aware during the planning stage for this celebration? What was your reaction to hearing that the Goodman and Susan Booth wanted to celebrate your legacy like this? Um, I was aware. Um, of course, they told me, you know, that they were going to do it. And my reaction was, wow, this is amazing. How wonderful is this? Um, it's very exciting. Um, and I'm a working playwright. I mean, I'm still working and writing plays. So it's it's um, really wonderful to have um, a whole city kind of looking at my work at the same time. And I'd, I was very happy to hear it. I've, I had, of course, worked with Susan Booth um, when she was at the Alliance Theater. So we had um, known each other for 20 years and we have a very good working relationship. So when she told me that um, they wanted to do this, I was just very um, excited, humbled by it, pleased about it. Um, and have been involved with them, you know, in terms of zooming in when I could do that. Um, and I, I love that they did such a range of things. You know, they did in the park a piece that my husband and I wrote for Little Tiny Children. And now they've been also doing Nakarima and blues and reading Angry Raucous and so many different things at the same time. And I've always had um, wonderful experiences in Chicago, such a, a vibrant, welcoming theater community. So it was it was great for me because I have a lot of a lot of friends in Chicago who are who are really proud that that this is happening. Me too. Yeah, I love that. I'm so excited to see all of the work that they're going to be putting out. <laughs> but uh, you you mentioned your your previous history with Susan. And I'm curious, as you look at the fact that Susan not only wanted to shepherd in this celebration, but specifically chose Nakarima Society to be her introduction as in a sense to the Chicago community as a director, as a leader. What did that mean for you to know that this is the work she wants to bring forward to the Chicago community first and foremost? Well, I think Susan is a um, is a wonderful artistic director. I think she's very much grounded in the community where she finds herself. She was that way in Atlanta. She's that way in Chicago. Um, and for me, uh, the Nakarima Society always has a special place in my relationship with Susan because that's the first play we worked on together. It was uh, commissioned by the Alabama Shakespeare Festival. And after they um, had agreed to produce it, I sent it to Susan, who I had met but did not know really well, and said, I'm hoping that after it closes in Alabama, maybe the Alliance would like to do it. Maybe you'd like to produce it in Atlanta. And she wrote me back and said, I would love to direct and produce it in Atlanta. So I said, well, okay, let me think about that. Um, and we had a wonderful conversation about um, the challenges of being uh, the two women that we were working together, a black woman on a, on a play like this and a white director on a play like this. And I told her I really had to communicate with the ghost of August Wilson, you know, who was always telling us a black play needs a black director. Um, and just trying to figure out if 
I thought this was a good fit for us. And I said to her, if we're going to do this, we have to promise that we will always, of course, tell each other the truth about everything, but most specifically about race. You know, we have to be able to talk honestly about race. You have to be able to listen to what I say. I have to be able to listen to what you say, but we have to, you know, assume best intentions and be able to talk to each other. And, and we have kept to that pledge forever. We spent a month in Montgomery, Alabama, um, getting the play on its feet for that first world premiere um, at uh, Alabama Shakespeare. And we were living in like the same apartment complex in Montgomery, Alabama, which is like a perfect place to talk about race. I mean, you're surrounded by all of those movement spirits and ghosts and all of that um, so that it was really wonderful. And it, I think, gave her an opportunity to see that an audience could come together and look at a play like Nakarima. And I remember watching people come in on that first night and they came in the way people will often do. And it was, I would say, maybe half uh, white audience, half black audience. Um, and many of the black people in that audience had been in the um, Alabama Shakespeare Festival before. And the people, you could see them coming in. They knew it was set during the movement days, civil rights movement days in Montgomery. And they came in with that serious look that people have when they think they're going to have to deal with something really serious and they might get fussed at or they might be the one doing the fussing, but they're not sure how they're going to feel about their neighbors. And they had that serious, we're going to do this because it's good for us look. And I was watching them thinking, they have no idea this is a romantic comedy. This is not going to make you have to fuss at your neighbor who's sitting next to you and your neighbor be uncomfortable around you. And I watched, literally watched the audience relax into that play because they realized it was a family story. It was a romance. It was all of those things that did not require them to stick up for their race or their side of any kind of issue. And I, I think that was a, a moment for, for me and Susan just in terms of working together and seeing that we could do it, you know, and to and to have those moments of telling each other things that might have been difficult to talk about, um, because race is not difficult to talk about if you tell the truth. If you say what you know or say what you want, you can do it, um, but you have to be encouraged to make a space to do that. So I was really pleased she chose Nakarima to open their season and to be a part of this festival. It means a lot to me. I love hearing that story the the your, your mentioning of the the audience expectations coming in and then the relaxation as they watch it reminded me there's a stage direction early on in the play that i want to read for folks who, who haven't seen it uh you say when entering grace's home it is important to remember that even in the midst of massive social upheaval and revolutionary change people still found time to fall in and out of love to keep the family secrets or to spill the beans and to embrace the great human chaos of their very specific lives. And that just hit me. <laughs> I was just like, yes, this, this, that, that's what this play is because like you said, it has this background of the civil rights movement, but it is a family story, which felt very universal as like I experienced the play. Like I could see this play taking place today in modern society with the current movements that we're dealing with. So I'm curious how you have seen, how your perception of the play has changed over the years, because a lot has happened in our country since this play originally premiered. So could you tell us a little bit about how you've seen that this play and its reception or its meaning change over the years? 
Well, I think the thing that um, one of the things I really love about the play um, is that it is a family story and that allows people to understand that all families are very similar. Um, playwrights write about, you know, five or six things. We write about love, we write about war, we write about family. But I remember when we did the play at the Alliance and a woman came up to me after the show, a white woman, and said, I was so amazed. That sounded just like my grandmother. And I said, I know, isn't it wonderful? All grandmothers say the same thing to their granddaughters. Be a good girl, study hard, pull your dress down, all of those kinds of things. They all say the same thing. So that I think the value of the play is to allow people to see that, to see that it doesn't have to be um, a cast of people who are the same race as you are, even the same class as you are, the same region as you are. Um, as long as you can find the humanity in those characters as a playwright, you can present them in a way where anyone who is a human being can relate to these characters. And we still, I think, have a lot of that idea that um, a Black play is going to be impossible for people who are not Black to access and to understand. And for me as an African-American person growing up in the United States, I always read things that were African-American because I was lucky. I had a family who had a house full of books by African-Americans, but I also read all kinds of other things. So I was a little girl in an all-Black neighborhood on the all-Black west side of Detroit reading Ibsen and saying, wow, I love these plays. I want to write like that. That, reading Tennessee Williams and saying, wow, I want to write like that. So that the whole idea of being open to um, a play that isn't coming specifically from your group or your gender or any of that is now foreign to me. In fact, it's, it's part of what my life has been like. So that when people are surprised and say to me, I can't believe I could actually love that grandmother because she had never, the audience member had never thought that she could, that she could see her own grandmother in a black woman. And my feeling about that is once you see it one time, you can see it again, you can understand it again. You can understand that that's not necessarily, necessarily the best way to encounter art to say, okay, I'm only gonna go see, you know, the plays written by black feminist women who live in Georgia. You know, that kind of limits what I can experience and there'd be some great work there. But I also think I should be able to see that Ukrainian play that you were talking about. I should be able to see every play and I should be able to access those plays um, because we're all human beings and we're all worrying about the same things. You know, we want to be safe. We want to grow old in peace. We want to sit on the front porch and wave at our neighbors and all of those kinds of things that we as humans want to do. And I think sometimes for Black plays, we are... Um, often expected as black playwrights to make every play a sociological statement. We're always supposed to be talking about, you know, what the history is and what this is and shaking our finger. And I came of age as a writer in the 60s. So I've seen a lot of plays and written a few plays are all about shaking that finger at the audience. And I remember as a very young woman watching a play in Detroit and the actors were doing a great job. They were angry and indignant and they were fussing about white people and talking about white people. And there weren't any white people for miles. You know, it was all of us in that theater together. And I remember thinking, how about if we stop fussing and just talk to each other? Let's tell some family stories. You know, those people we're fussing at don't live around here. They're not coming to this theater. Let's talk about our grandmothers. Let's talk about our lovers. Let's talk about our children. Um, and that has really stayed with me. I'm. I'm convinced that people do not go to the theater to be fussed at. You know, a good mass meeting is a work of art and I love them, grew up in them. 
but that's different than going to the theater. And I'm always trying to find a welcoming space where people can hear the story I want to tell, no matter who the people are who are populating that story. Does it feel like the industry is shifting in a better direction in terms of that, in terms of making these stories for communities and less finger wagging, but more like actual in the community stories? Because I feel like we're going in the right direction now. I do. And I think that that, um, that has to do with um, people fussing about it, you know, and saying, we want this institution to be more welcoming, whatever that institution is. We want these um, plays to reflect the community um, that is surrounding these theaters. And I think all of that is necessary. I think we're in a real transition moment. Um, and I think people are nervous. Um, they don't know exactly what we should be doing now. You know, how are we supposed to program now? The pandemic threw us all um, into a tailspin, but we were already before the pandemic trying to figure out what does it mean, you know, to be an American theater, a truly American theater. What does it mean not to always have white be at the center? I'm not a big fan of the phrase BIPOC, you know, because what does that mean? You know, it means, okay, everybody of color over here, and then there's white people over here, and that's a color too. So that the whole idea of trying to figure out what are even the terms that we want to use to describe ourselves? What are the ways we want to talk about these stories with each other? And it's it's nerve wracking for people because people are used to saying what they think you want to hear when you're talking about serious problems like race. You know, they don't want to get fussed at. They don't want that accusatory finger. So they're trying to figure out what do you need to hear to calm down? And it's like, that's not the way to do it. We all have to shout and scream and thrash around and then we get to calm down. And I think we're still in some of the shouting and screaming and thrashing around part of it, but we're getting better because we have to. If we don't get better, these theaters, these especially these great big regional theaters are gonna die. You know, there's no way you can keep these gigantic buildings where the light bill is just astronomical, where it costs a lot. I mean, we live in Georgia, you know, so that it costs a lot to air condition these buildings. Um, and if you're in Minnesota, it costs a lot to heat those buildings. But why are they there? Why are those edifices so important? What is it that makes it worth our while to spend a million dollars on, on an electric bill? And the only thing that makes it worth our while is that's where we can come as the people who live in that town to see stories about us, to see stories about our neighbors, to see stories about people who might not be like us, but we can see their stories on the stage. And I think we're just learning how to do that um, within these institutions because I always have to say within these institutions, because they're at the same time of these great, big, wonderful, beautiful institutions have been going on. There also have been in every community, culturally specific theaters doing great work. Every community does theater and they may do, you know, small theater in the basement of the community center. They may do a bigger space. They may do at the church, whatever it is, but every community makes theater and when we talk about American theater, we have to expand what we think of so that it's not just Broadway and the regionals. It's also all of the smaller theaters that are already responding to their communities, already responding to the people that live and work around that theater, because that's where they where they come from. Those theaters are coming from those communities. And I 
grew up very fortunate, I think, um, came of age as a playwright when there was a national network of black theaters that were producing work all the time. So when I came out of, of Spelman College, finished up my studies, and I started sending scripts to all of these theaters saying, I'm a black playwright, you're a black theater, will you do my play? And some of them could do it. Some of them you know, could pay me 10 bucks to do it. Some of them couldn't pay anything to do it. But I was able to become a part of a network of theaters. And some of them were tiny, tiny little theaters. And some of them were much bigger, but they were all committed to putting forward stories about the black community. So that it, it never was for me um, a lack of access because the network that I was trying to access, that was trying to access the audience at that time that I was talking to specifically, existed in the black networks. So when I became the playwright in residence at the Alliance and people would say, oh, that's so wonderful. Like I just had become a playwright and I was always quick to say, no, no, they didn't find me. You know, I had been working for 20 years in the professional American theater, but some of you had never seen me because you never came to those theaters. And isn't it wonderful now you can. Now you can not only see me here, but you can go to all these other theaters and see some other playwrights who are coming uh, to the theater deeply rooted in and reflective of where they live. And I think that's what will happen more and more. And it's just the messiness of the transition, but you know, transitions are always messy. We can do it. I, I want to give Kalendra a, a chance to ask questions as well, but I'm going to throw one more your way before I, I <laughs> hand the mic over. As you're talking about all of these learnings you had, you've had in your career and navigating the current state of the field, I'm curious what advice you'd give to a young playwright out there who is starting their career during this, this period of transition. What advice would you have for them trying to navigate this world? Tell the truth, tell the truth, always tell the truth. And to find an audience that you can put in your head when you're writing your plays that will give you permission to tell the truth. When you're writing, you need an audience in your head that's gonna say, yes, tell it, tell all of it. We wanna know all of it, as opposed to an audience that's gonna say, I don't really understand that. I don't know what you mean when you say that. What do you mean when you talk about the kitchen on your hair? What do you mean when you talk about this? That's not good when you're writing. When you're writing, you have to have someone who laughs at the jokes that are rooted in your specific community. And then as it ripples out, you will be able to make sure that you include other people. But I think one of the problems that um, young black playwrights that I have met, some of them have, is that they have been very well trained at wonderful schools and universities, but they've never had a chance to work in front of a black audience. So that when they do have a chance to work in front of a black audience, they're so hungry for that response, for a joke that doesn't land the same in a predominantly white audience because they don't get it. And then they do the same joke in front of a predominantly black audience. And the people say, oh, no, you didn't and fall out and all of that because they get it. So that it's it's important not to say I'm only going to work in front of this audience or that audience, because I want all of us to work in front of everybody because we can share all our stories. But if you are a, a playwright who is from a specific community, make sure that you do some plays, do some work, do some readings in front of those audiences so you will know that your play is resonating, that you're not changing things for people who might not get the joke because they don't know it. And then when they get to the theater and they don't get the joke, they'll have to turn to the person next to them and say, why was that funny? You know, what was that about? You know, what was that about? 
I saw a recent production at, at the Alliance um, of Hot Wing Kings. And there's a, a point in there where they're talking about Luther Vandross and the people on the stage started singing Luther Vandross. Every black person in that audience sang along. My daughter was with me. We were in the back just singing our asses off because we all knew the song. We knew it. And the people sitting right behind us were like, how do all of you know that song? And then we got to talk about that, you know, about Luther, about all of that stuff. But it it becomes a, um, a way of enlarging the story, not making the story smaller if you always, always tell the truth. Find some people who you think will understand your story and read it to them. Then you'll know if it works. I love that. Uh, my my family would a hundred percent be the singing in the theater to Luther. You have to, you know, you got to. Right? <laughs> you can't resist it. Uh, but I know you also have a world premiere coming up. That I'm sure Calandra is very excited to talk about, as well as Atlanta Connections. Absolutely. Um, so first, I, I remember that you were absolutely right. I remember seeing the Hot Wing King and the, the, the audience <laughs> erupted in song and it was a beautiful, beautiful moment of that show. Um, but we are going to, since we're going to, we're talking about Atlanta, we're going to stay in Atlanta, um, which is a place that you have called home for many, many years. And, um, oh, just a, a quick thing for folks who are in Atlanta who are watching, you will get to see Blues for an Alabama Sky at Actors Express next summer. So, you know, shameless plug there um, <laughs> for uh, Pearl Clegg. But I... I think one of the things that is so wonderful about your work and that has been so inspirational for me is that you make Atlanta the place, a character in so many of your plays. And you have a new play, Something Moving, which is about Maynard Jackson, Atlanta's first black mayor about his election. And the play will have its world premiere at the Ford Theater in Washington, DC from September 22nd to October 15th. And so I'm so fascinated about how the conversation with the Ford Theater commissioning this piece from you, how did that come about? And what made you say, I have to dramatize this particular moment in history? Um. Ford's Theater has a program called the Lincoln Legacy Commissions, and it's a, a new program for them. And what they did was commission 14 playwrights. And what they asked us to do was to shine some light on a historical figure or moment that we thought had not gotten um, the attention that it deserved. And Sheldon Epps, um, wonderful director and friend, um, Sheldon Epps, um, called me and asked me if I would be interested in um, being a part of that program of, of receiving a commissioning from that program. And I had just started thinking um, about uh, the fact that this was 50 years since Maynard had been elected. And I wanted to write about that. And so I said to Sheldon, I would love to, I would be so honored to be a part of that first cohort of playwrights, but does 50 years count as historic? You know, is that enough time? And he said, absolutely not a problem. So I said, I'm in, then that's great. Let's, let's do it. Um, and I wanted to, um, to look at uh, the fact that it was 50 years since we elected our first black mayor. We've had many black mayors since then, but that this specific moment um, was such a transition um, for Atlanta. It was not that long after the Voting Rights Act. Act. So a lot of people who voted for Maynard had never had a chance to vote for anybody at all, ever. So that that was a, um, a big emotional kind of um, release, in addition to being a very political um, release that happened for people. I worked in Maynard's first campaign and actually went to City Hall and worked at City Hall for 
two and a half years before I ran screaming and realized I really love campaigns. I do not like being in the bureaucracy. But it was a it was an experience, especially the campaign that I will never forget because he was so deeply committed to Atlanta. He loved Atlanta more than I had ever seen anybody love a city. Um, and he wanted to do um, a stellar job as the first black mayor because he knew the pressure that was gonna be on him, the eyes that were gonna be on him. And he understood the weight of all the expectations for all of the black folks who were voting for him, who wanted him to fix everything on day one, you know, make it right, make it right. Um, he also understood the nervousness of the white community that was like, uh-oh, you know, now what's going to happen when we're not in charge at City Hall? But I, I didn't want to do a, a piece that had him as a character. Um, like now I'm going to write Maynard Jackson as a character in a play. I don't really know if I could ever even do him justice that way. So the play is actually um, pretending to be a rehearsal for um, a, uh, a presentation that's gonna be made for the 50th anniversary. And there are nine citizens who are um, expressing the stories of other Atlantans who wrote their stories and put them in a box so that they could be gathered together. And of course, none of that happened. I made all of these. These are all fictional people, fictional stories. But what I was trying to do was to get at the feeling of what it was like to be there, of how exciting it was, how exhausting it was, how we were meeting people that we didn't know in a campaign, how we were trying to get people involved in a way where they could take ownership and feel a part of all of this. So that it's it's really been a, a wonderful opportunity for me to think deeply about democracy, um, about electoral politics at a time when I think our country needs to think deeply about electoral politics, about voting, about how important it is, um, about what we mean when we say somebody is our leader. What do we expect from them? What do they expect from us? All of those things that I was thinking about um, in terms of thinking about Maynard, and then to have an opportunity to do it at Ford's Theater, um, right there where the box where Lincoln was assassinated is right there over the stage. I mean, it's so close that John Wilkes Booth could jump from the box onto the stage where we're in rehearsal right now. I mean, it's it's a, a moment for me as a playwright where I get to take all the things that are on my mind about our country at this moment that are driving me crazy, put them into a play and then see them done at a place where a very important event in American history took place. So I'm I'm grateful to the people at Ford's for the for the commissioning project and then for for allowing me to say 50 years is long enough to count as historic and to actually do this play um, on the Ford stage. I'm very excited about it. I want to go back to something you mentioned because as you mentioned, you were communications director of uh, Maynard Jackson's campaign. I know you wrote the speech he gave about the war in Vietnam. Um, and I want you to take us back, though, specifically, tell me what is something you remember about Election Day? What was the energy specifically like in Atlanta on that day? It was crazy. It was crazy. Um, we were all up at like five o'clock in the morning because we used to go down to to Five Points, you know, um, being from Atlanta, you know, Five Points is where all the, the buses used to come in, all of that at the same time. And we always went so that we could meet the people who were 
transferring on their buses at like six o'clock in the morning. And many of those people were black women who were going to take two more buses to get to the big neighborhoods where they were working um, in those mansions that were in some of those wealthy neighborhoods. So we would meet the buses and Maynard would be with us there meeting the buses, handing out um, brochures, handing out buttons, um, introducing himself like anybody could possibly not know who he was. But it was, you know, when he would say, I'm Maynard Jackson, I hope I can count on your vote today. The, the reaction that he almost always got was delighted laughter. People would be like, we know who you are. We're going to vote for you. You know, we know you're going to be the mayor. You're going to be. So it was a it was a we all knew what was going to happen. And when I first got to Atlanta, uh, Maynard was running for vice mayor and he got elected soon after I got there. And I'd, I often laugh about the fact that for the whole time he was vice mayor, his middle name might as well have been that brother's going to be the mayor because anybody who said anything to me about Maynard always said that brother is going to be the mayor. And on election day, it felt like that, like we all knew it. And now we were going to have a chance to actually do it. So it was a, it was like the whole town was vibrating um, in a really positive way. Um, and there had to be a runoff so that then we had to come back and do that again. But it was a, it was just a, a moment when you can see that you are a part of something wonderful. Um, that is happening and that your one small vote is going to join with all of the votes of your neighbors and friends and make a difference um, in the city where you live. And it was a it was a great feeling. It really was. That sounds electric. I I think one of the unique things about Atlanta as a major city is that it's it's one of the few major cities in the country that has had a African-American mayor for nearly since Maynard. Um, and so I, and I, one of the things I remember, um, speaking of DC, going to the National Museum of African American and History, uh, History and Culture there, is that there's this uh, magazine that talks about Atlanta, the Black Mecca, with a picture of Maynard Jackson on the cover, right? Yeah. And, and Atlanta has had this reputation as being the Black Mecca, the Black Mecca. I want you to talk a little bit about how you uphold and how you challenge that lore of Atlanta as the Black Mecca in the play. Because I had a chance to read a script. You were very gracious in allowing them to send it over. And I just want you to talk a little bit about how you uplift that and how you challenge that lore of this Black Mecca idea in the play. Well, I think that that, that always is. You know, Atlanta is a city, and, and actually it's the only city I've ever lived in where very poor people sound just like the Chamber of Commerce when they talk about the city. They love the city. They don't want you to say anything bad about the city. Um, but the problem with that is that sometimes then we are not as critical of the Black leadership that we have as we should be. Um, so I wanted to include some of that in the play, that there was a, a strike of sanitation workers soon after um, Maynard was elected mayor and he had been very pro the union organizing that was going on when he was vice mayor. But when he was mayor, he fired 900 workers because they were trying to organize a union. So there's that moment when people are like, but wait, that's our guy. How can he do that? And it makes you understand that the reason that people change when they get elected is that the people who elected him are, elected them are often not the people they're talking to every day. Once they get elected, the people that are talking to them tend to be people with money, power, and influence. And those are not necessarily the issues that those people um, want to raise. And I think it's important um, not to, for me certainly, not to create a piece that tried to say Maynard was perfect, everything he did was perfect, and we're never going to critique him. We have to. 
we have to critique him because if we don't critique him, we can't critique the mayor we've got now. You know, if we can't talk about the striking sanitation workers, how are we ever going to talk about Cop City? You know, how are we going to talk about what does it mean to be a leader? Not just to say, we're so proud you're the black mayor. It's like, okay, but we've had a whole bunch of black mayors. Some were good, some were not so good, but we have to be able to critique them. We have to be able to hold their feet to the fire and say, just being black is not enough. You have to also talk to me about why you are pro-union or not pro-union, why you have an idea about the police department that is not like my idea about the police department. And we have to be able to do that. Otherwise, we end up powerless looking at someone who does not resemble in any way the person we thought we sent to City Hall. And I hope I have enough of that in the um, in the play to make it clear that this is a, a very challenging job. There's a, um, a line in the play where somebody says, you know, we had to realize that the mayor's office didn't come with a set of superpowers. It only came with a set of super problems because the fact that you love this person and you think they're great doesn't mean they can figure out how to get your garbage picked up on time. They have to know how to do that. Doesn't mean they can end police brutality. They have to figure out how to do that. And that's that's part of what is important about keeping citizens engaged um, in what's going on. Because if you send the person up there and then go away and don't come back for four years, a lot can happen in four years. And oftentimes we tend to do that um, not just us in Atlanta, but American people tend to do that. We'll send a president to the White House that we think is wonderful, and then we'll go home and figure, you know, he's going to take care of it. And they can't do that without us. There has to be that that exchange between the leader and the people who decided he was going to speak for us or she was going to speak to us. We have to continue to be engaged or it, or it can't work. It doesn't work. And we end up with the mess we've got now, you know, where it's just um, scary to look at what's going on and to think about how can we get out of that, back to what leadership is, back to what citizenship represents, back to why voting is an important thing. And I know a lot of young people don't feel that way about voting. They're cynical because they've seen such terrible um, results of some of the elections um, that they have looked at. But it's, you know, I always wanna ask people, okay, if we're not gonna vote, what are we gonna do? You know, you give me a, another option and I'm all in to explore that. But until you have one, just go with me. Vote this, vote, just vote. And then you could find something better and we'll do that. But until we do, let's go with what democracy really is at the heart of it. You know, the right to vote. That's why people were prepared to die for it, because that's how citizens control their country, control their government, and do the things that need to be done. So Pearl Clegg for mayor of Atlanta, yes, or? <laughs> <laughs> no chance, no, no chance. <laughs> I'd be a terrible mayor because it's such a hard job and it's things where you can't, you know, make it, being able to write a wonderful speech is one thing. And I'm a great speech writer. I'm very passionate about the issues. And I grew up in a family where my father was a great minister and a great speaker and all of that. But once you get in the bureaucracy, you've got to figure out how you're going to do these things, how you're going to really plan things, how you're going to do it. And it's not fun. It's very difficult. I'm not a city planner. I'm an artist. So I would be the person in the meetings. They'd be trying to talk about budgets and I'd be saying, but, you know, but what about the people? What about the people? And they were like, oh, God, can someone please get Pearl out of here? Because she keeps bringing up the feelings, you know, when we're trying to talk about garbage pickup. But, you know, I think you have to have everybody in there. But no chance will I ever run for office. No one has to worry about that. <laughs> Not gonna happen. 
<laughs> I was I was holding on to hope. Uh, so, <laughs> but I think you 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 bring up something so important because I I often say and do truly believe that Atlanta is a microcosm of America in so many ways. And so I do want to ask, what is your vision? for a more equitable Atlanta, especially since Atlanta has the reputation of having the largest income inequality gap in the nation, right? And with Atlanta being a microcosm of America, what is your vision of a more equitable Atlanta, which of course then becomes a vision for a more equitable United States of America? I think two of the things that we have to talk about and think about and fix um, in Atlanta and in the country are education and homelessness. You know, our schools are are um, in a state of unrest. Um, teachers are being treated uh, terribly. There is now all kinds of censorship um, going on in the schools about material that is only telling the truth. Um, our students are graduating way below where they need to be um, graduating. And we have to have schools be a part of the communities where they are, part of the city. They have to be important to all of us because all of those children that we're sending to school for 10, 12 years, they have to come out knowing how to do something. And the main thing they have to know how to do is think. They have to be able to figure stuff out. And we're not really doing a good job at that. So I would say we definitely have to think about education. And we have to think about people who are living on the street, people who don't have the possibility of work, don't have the possibility of living indoors so that you got what you have in Chicago, New York, California, Atlanta, where there's people living in tents everywhere. You know, and the government's response cannot be, well, what we're going to do is put a lot of big rocks there where those people were setting up their tents so they can't live there. Okay, but then where are they going to go? You know, we're going to move them out of this neighborhood so those folks can't see them. But where are they going to go? The question isn't who's going to see them. The question is, what can we do to get people work so that they can live inside? They can feed their families. They can have a life that is not just pillar to post. And I think so many people are prepared to just not even think about homelessness as a real problem. You know, we still have so many of us who think about that as weakness on the part of the people um, who are unsheltered. You know, they should work harder. They should, you know, and anyone who has ever known anyone who was living on the street, they work hard just to find a way to eat every day, just to find where am I going to sleep tonight? And most of the homeless population in Atlanta at this point, a lot of the people who are living on the street are children, women and children living in the shelters, women and children, so that there's no way you can tell me that a five-year-old child, an eight-year-old child, a baby is responsible for not having a place to live. And we can fix it if we have the will to fix it. And the problem is we don't have the will to fix it. There is so much money in this country that no one should ever be hungry. There's so much that needs to be done in this country that no one should ever be looking for a job, but we don't have the will to do it. And we're distracted by all kind of stuff so that we end up worrying about material things, worrying about things. Can I afford this? And can I afford that? And hoping that we don't have to see any homeless people when we go downtown. You know, that's not right. You know, we have to see people as that's you. You know, that could be you. No one sets out to be living under a bridge in a rainstorm like people were last night in Atlanta. Nobody that's nobody's life plan. And we have to be able to see ourselves in our neighbors. 
And I hope that's that's part of what this play does, you know, that's that's going to be at Ford's is to take a range of people, poor people, rich people, black people, white people, people of various ethnicities and ages and put us all together on that stage and say, OK, talk about it. Talk about where you are. Talk about what it feels like to be you so that we can come together and understand that all of these problems can be fixed if we want to. But if all we're trying to do is, you know, get rich and famous and get a big car and get, you know, a whole lot of expensive shoes, that's not going to happen. And that stuff doesn't really matter. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful if everybody who needed a job in Atlanta could get one? If everybody who needed a place to live could get one? Why doesn't that happen? And that's that's the question that that always is important to me. How can we find leadership that understands that, you know, that isn't isn't dealing like homeless people like there's something different. It's the way people talk about slavery. You know, those weren't slaves. Those are human beings. Those aren't homeless people. Those are human beings. And I think if we can get there, which is what theater is supposed to help us do, understand the human family, understand how we all fit into this story together, I think we can fix it. And I do hope that that's what art does, that's what culture does, um, help us get uh, together in community. Um, and I always want my work to be a part of that. It's funny, you know, I, I just heard myself, I said, now you just preach it now. It's like, that's what happens when you start talking to 60s people. Once we get going, we're on it. So it's, <laughs> but I do believe we can fix everything if we just would. And I, I think I'm still idealistic in that way. I'm still hopeful in that way because we've got enough brains and enough money and enough resources to fix all of it if we want to. But if we don't want to, we're going to pay the price for that. We're going to end up with angry, angry people. And that's what we've got in Atlanta now. A lot of young people are angry. Why do they act the way they do? Why do they shoot each other? Because they're angry. And it's free-floating anger because they don't have access to what they need. So they're mad about it. And you can't get around that. You have to fix that. You have to fix it. Well, Pearl Clegg, you can preach for as long as you want to. Um, <laughs> we <laughs> appreciate um, your perspective. And we are so thankful that you came on with us today and told the truth. So everyone out there, if you're in Chicago, D.C., Atlanta, you will have the opportunity to see one of Pearl Clegg's plays at some point this theater season. Check out your local listings to get more information and check American Theater Magazine's website. And we will have more information about the festival and all of these plays and where they'll be playing in a city near you. Pearl Clegg, thank you so, so very much for being oh, on with us today. You. Thank you all so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. And I'm so glad you're going back to print so I can actually hold that magazine. I cannot wait for it to appear in my mailbox. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. All right, JR, you have anything else you want to say before we close out? I, I could talk to Pearl all day, but I, <laughs> I just want to echo your, your gratitude toward Pearl like for taking the time to chat. And I'm very excited to spend the next month. I think it runs through October 15th here in Chicago, Pearl Clegg Fest. And so uh, I, I look forward to celebrating all of your work for, for the next four weeks. Thank you. Thank you. 
All right, theater family, that is it for Offscript today. Be sure to tune in for our October episode where we will be announcing the top 10 most produced playwrights in the country as well as the, I mean, excuse me, top 10 most produced plays in the country and top 20 most produced playwrights. And we will have those folks on the podcast for that episode. So you will not want to miss it. Have a wonderful weekend and make sure you go see something fun. 